Hello, welcome to Eyes for Ears, your ophthalmology OCAPS and Board of View podcast. This week, we come back with our special guest host, Grayson Armstrong, who you may remember from a recent series of episodes where he reviewed open globes and how to manage them and treat them in the OR. Bringing him back this week because he is the first and only clinical fellow in ophthalmic telemedicine in the country. And I thought it would be a waste to not invite him back on to share his experience and knowledge about telemedicine, which may change how we practice in the extremely near future. Thanks for coming back on, Grayson. Thanks for having me again. It's exciting to be here. I guess to open this episode, I bet most of our the residents or trainees who listen to this aren't using telemedicine actively now. The closest thing they might have is triaging telephone calls to get from patients in the middle of the night and trying to figure out whether to have them come into the ED or not. What's the role of telemedicine now in ophthalmology and why do we need to think about it as ophthalmology changes in the future? So ophthalmology has started to uptake telemedicine kind of by uh, necessity during the COVID pandemic. They were experimenting with it before as a field and we certainly have some successes early on. But I predict that it's going to make up a sizable portion of every single ophthalmologist's practice in the future. And it's imperative that we understand where the field is going and stay caught up and up to date on it. Eventually, I foresee there being curriculums based around it. And every ophthalmologist in the country is going to have to know how to do this to manage patients appropriately. Hmm. And why do you think that's going to increase in need in the future? What do you think is motivating that? So there's... There are a few things motivating the use of telemedicine, and this is well before uh, COVID-19 came around. So first and foremost, the world's population is aging and it's growing. And as a result, a lot of the eye diseases we treat are age-related, and um, we are seeing an increase in the number of ophthalmic diseases across the world. You know, the number of diabetic patients are expected to uh, increase by nearly 50% over the next 20 years, from 415 million to 642 million patients. The number of patients with AMD and cataract and otherwise are also increasing. This isn't just in ophthalmology, but within our specialty, it's especially pertinent because of our increased care for elderly patients. And so not only that, but there's a huge cost of healthcare in the United States, right? Healthcare takes up a huge chunk of our GDP every year and it's only increasing. And if we can find a way to provide care in a more effective and efficient way by decreasing costs, and still providing that high-quality care, then I think we're doing best for our patients, for our economy, and for the country, really. So that's, I think, what's driving things and what got people interested in the first place. Because, you know, as technology advances, technology does really serve, like, it provides a potential for telemedicine, uh, whereas it wasn't possible just a couple years ago. Hmm. Can you give us any examples within ophthalmology where this might have some effectiveness? So within ophthalmology, there's a few fields that have really taken this to heart early on. One of those is the use of telemedicine for diabetic retinopathy screenings. For diabetic retinopathy, all you really need to do is find a patient population that's well delineated with diabetes. It's easy enough to do. A lot of primary care offices and endocrinology offices can identify those patients pretty easily. And then you need to look at their fundus and you need to look and see if there's any evidence of neovascularization or macular edema. And if so, how bad is it? And because fundus photographs have existed for so long, we've done a really good job at standardizing the process of getting those fundus photos taken, having an ophthalmologist or otherwise review them remotely, and then get back to the patient 
or the primary care doctor about what they saw. And so it's been proven that this is very clinically effective. It's also cost effective. And so it there have been entire countries that have implemented telemedicine screening for their diabetic patients. For example, the UK has a nationwide program where every patient with diabetes is supposed to get an annual fundus photograph, and then someone reviews those for evidence of diabetes. Obviously, the UK has a national program for healthcare, so it's easy to implement, and it's more fragmented in the United States. But it just goes to show that this is like not new. This has been studied for a long time. There's a lot of data, and it's very effective. Other areas include things like glaucoma, where elderly patients in certain racial and ethnic demographics are at higher risk of glaucoma. Retinopathy of prematurity, they've tried it there. Um, Michael Chang is a big expert in that space. He's the current National Eye Institute director, and he did a lot of the early research in that, in, in addition to the AI work in that. But, you know, premature babies, that's a very delineated population. They're easy to identify, they're all in the NICUs. And if you can capture standardized fundus photographs for that population, then you don't necessarily have to have an ophthalmologist on site. Some countries don't have any pediatric ophthalmologists. And so in South America, there's big networks where, you know, a technician will take photographs of these babies' eyes, send it to a relatively remote ophthalmologist for for screening purposes, and they'll make diagnoses and make recommendations for treatment. Wow. It sounds like there's obvious role for telemedicine when you have large populations that need screening. Uh, What changed with COVID? Well, I think everything changed with COVID. <laughs> we, you know, and when we're recording this, it's almost um, just a little over a year since the pandemic hit. So, like in March 2020, everyone knows that the WHO declared a pandemic and the US quickly instituted social distancing guidelines. What you may not remember is that the American Academy of Ophthalmology decided to um, halt all non emergent ophthalmic treatment and patient care. Now, a lot of the care that we provide is elective right? But patients still need eye care. And so there's still a drive to try to find a way to examine them. Just to give you a sense of how much changed during COVID, across all specialties in medicine, the number of visits declined by nearly 65 to 70% during the first few weeks. So the majority of patient visits were canceled and rescheduled. The places that were hardest hit were outpatient care, in ambulatory surgery centers, which are, which are exactly where ophthalmologists practice. Yeah, that's us. That's us. Yeah. That's like us in a nutshell, basically. ERs were still busy, as you know, and then other inpatient was still busy, but really ambulatory care was basically halted across the country. And Medicare spending data shows the same thing, that amongst all physicians, you know, we took a hit of nearly 60% during those first few weeks of COVID. So it was hard for physicians to maintain their livelihood to pay their staff, to pay their overhead. Ophthalmology of all specialties did the worst. We had a nearly 80% decline in the number of outpatient visits during the first few weeks of COVID, and that's the worst of all specialties across all of medicine. Not only that, but if you if you average this out over the course of all of 2020, we had a decline of about 18%, which equates to $766 million in lost revenue as a specialty, which is, again, the worst of all specialties. And we are, many ophthalmologists are really struggling to find ways to make ends meet. And they were looking for solutions to try to increase um, patient care for not only financial reasons, but because patients still needed to be seen. Patients were out there and they were losing their vision. One of the only real ways that you can implement social distancing and continue to take care of patients is telemedicine. And that's why telemedicine over the past year has gotten so much hype and so much attention. You know, as an idea, it made sense for ophthalmologists to try it out. Early on, people 
you know, just did whatever they could. They talked to patients on Skype. They talked to patients on FaceTime. But there were a lot of regulatory changes that happened that enabled telemedicine to take place. The first and foremost is the fact that during the COVID pandemic, the government instituted payment parity for telemedicine visits. What that means is that a telemedicine visit was paid the same amount as an in-person visit for the very first time in history. Prior to COVID, you were basically paid pennies on the dollar for a telemedicine visit compared to an in-person visit. So of course, why would anyone do a telemedicine visit unless they had to? But because they could make the same amount of money, there was no real uh, drawback. There were physician liability protections put in place from different governmental agencies so that physicians wouldn't be held accountable for a lot of the bad things that were happening. They relaxed a lot of the HIPAA communication requirements. So for instance, beforehand, you had to have a, a platform to talk to patients that was HIPAA secure. But during the pandemic, you can use anything you want. And we'll get to this maybe a little bit later, but you can use FaceTime, you can use Skype, you can use uh, WeChat, you can use WhatsApp, whatever it is that you want to talk to the patient on. And then patients uh, could be seen across state lines for the first time by physicians. So if I was sitting in Massachusetts, I could see patients in Maine and New Hampshire, whereas beforehand, licensure limitations would not allow me to do so. Hmm. Co-payments were waived so that patients didn't have to pay out of pocket for these telemedicine visits. And for the very first time, we were also able to see new patients, patients we'd never seen before via telemedicine. Beforehand, you could only see a patient that you had a pre-existing established relationship with via telemedicine. So all those things enabled telemedicine to take flight and people across all areas of medicine basically gobbled it up and were trying to see what could be done. There is a lot of data that shows that this is true because Medicare prior to COVID, less than 0.1% of all patient care was paid for via telemedicine, but <laughs> it's like nothing basically. Yeah. During the pandemic, this increased to pretty much almost 17% of physician payments were for telemedical care. And so that just goes to show you that like basically overnight telemedicine was the new model of care for the majority of stuff. How did ophthalmology do? <laughs> yeah. What percent of that 17 was us? We, you know, by the percentages, it was 0%. We did not do a good Zero. job. Zero. Yep. There's, <laughs> unfortunately, we didn't do a great job in implementing ophthalmology. And so if, if I'm sitting here telling you that I'm an ophthalmology telemedical fellow, but I'm telling you that ophthalmologists did 0% telemedicine, then like, obviously. You got to get those numbers up, man. Got to get those numbers up. But I guess part of the reason why I wanted to come on here is to tell everyone that it is actually possible and that there's some really interesting innovations taking place within telemedicine and ophthalmology that actually make meaningful telemedical visits possible, um, whereas they were not before. So why are we 0%? Like what makes ophthalmology the worst of these specialties for telemedicine? First and foremost, we're a very exam-heavy specialty. And so similar to dermatology where you have to look at the skin rash, similar to cardiology where you have to listen to the heart and get an echo to really see what's going on in EKG. For ophthalmology, we rely very heavily on the subjective and objective exam techniques that we use in the office every day. Vision, pressure, pupil exams, slit lamp, and fundus imaging and, and fundus exam. Those things are critical to what we do every day. And it's not really possible to digitize all of these dev- all of these exam techniques and get those to patients where they need it most, right? So yeah, so we're kind of limited in what we can do remotely. Yeah, so what can we do remotely right now? Yeah, like what, what is available right now to do things remotely? So the things that are most obvious that we can do remotely right now are if someone needed glasses, they could technically 
be sat down in an autorefractor and get an autorefraction. And that gets them pretty close to what they need for glasses. For intraocular pressure, there is the home-based eye care tonometer. And that can Mm. be used in a patient's home to collect their pressures if you prescribe that device for them. Fundus photography has been used for a long time, as has OCT, and those devices exist. And those So basically, the retina exam is digitized. The eye pressure exam is digitized. The refraction and sometimes the vision is digitized. But not everything, like I said, is digitized. So what happens if you wanted to do gonioscopy on a patient? What happens if you wanted to do a really good slit lamp exam to look for cell and flare or for look to, uh, to look for gutte or to look for like, I don't know, like an iris tumor? That stuff is not as easy to do. And so we've been trying to create new and innovative techniques to make that happen. It's worth knowing that like I'm not the only one thinking about this. There's a lot of really smart people across the country looking into ophthalmic telemedicine. And if you look at the number of publications in PubMed related to ophthalmic telemedicine, it was kind of teetering around like maybe 20 a year for the past couple of years. But all of a sudden, in 2020, the number of publications rose above 120. So for the first time, people just basically went, went all in on trying to figure out what to do for telemedicine. Most of those are retrospective analyses. And so they're kind of looking at what was done in the emergency seeing what was effective and trying to take away key learning points. But there's a huge need for prospective studies to learn true best practices and to try those and make sure that they're providing good care, but also that they're cost-effective as well. A lot of that data doesn't exist right now, except for screening programs. Okay, so, you know, I, I and I think most residence fellows are not familiar with what it takes to deliver a telemedicine visit in ophthalmology. So what are all the steps that are required to make something like this happen? Well, if you start thinking about it on a granular basis, it can be pretty overwhelming pretty quickly. And so imagine a patient comes into your office today, like what all happens that would need to be replicated in a telemedicine visit? First of all, of course, the patient needs to show up. You need to check their vision and their refraction You need to check their pupils, their pressure, do a slit lamp exam, you do a fundoscopic exam, you put in some dilating drops and you look at the back of the eye. You need to be able to perform procedures, potentially like an intraocular injection. You need to capture imaging and testing like Humphrey visual field, like fundus photography. You need to have a technician help you with some of this stuff so the physician isn't doing this all themselves all the time. So you have to have help around. You have to be able to communicate with the patient, prescribe glasses prescribe medicines like eye drops, document the exam, you need to bill. Like It's crazy the amount of things that you have to replicate in this virtual format. And it seems like too much. And maybe people would just walk away listening to that litany of things that I just listed. But <laughs> but don't, don't stop. Don't stop listening yet. You're, don't stop you're listening, listening yet. Listening. <laughs> yeah, one, one second. One second. <laughs> Basically, if you think about it at its core, all we're really trying to do is capture enough clinical information about the eye to make an informed decision about what's going on and communicate that to the patient, right? That's like at the core of what we're trying to do. Uh-huh. And so if telemedicine were to work, the hypothesis across the system is that you can increase access to care for patients, increase patient satisfaction while decreasing costs um, and healthcare disparities while overall maintaining or even improving the quality of care that's delivered to the patient. And so I think there's promise. I think it'll just take some time to get there. So you've talked about screening already as one of the potential goals of teleophthalmology. What other things do you think could be achieved with teleophthalmology? That's a good question. So there's different goals for different visits, right? And so you don't have to think about this much when a patient comes into your office. 
If they're coming in for an acute problem, you're basically triaging it and treating it. You're diagnosing something too. If a patient's calling you on the phone, you're basically screening them and trying to triage whether it's an emergency or not. But for telemedicine, um, there's a few buckets of what you can try to accomplish with it, with that visit. First, you can try to triage. Again, just like those phone calls that residents get in the middle of the night from the patients that are post-op with those corneal abrasions from <laughs> the consults. Um, <laughs> if you if you get a, a call and the patient's having an emergency, is it worth coming in person or can they wait and can you prescribe medicine? Second, we talked about screening. So if a patient is in a known risk factor group, like a patients with diabetes, can you screen for that disease and give them enough information about whether they need to be referred or not? Third, a higher order level of information needed would be for diagnosis. So it's it takes more information, more useful clinical information to make a diagnosis, but that is a goal of care. Uh, you would just have to have all the appropriate testing at your fingertips. You can try to manage long-term chronic diseases like glaucoma, AMD. You can try to take care of these people long-term via telemedicine. And the last thing is that you can try to talk to patients that you otherwise might not have access to. And so at our institution, sometimes we get people coming in from the Middle East or Bahrain or these places for a second or a third or fourth opinion on their eye condition. And now with telemedicine, we might be able to do that while the patient's still in their home country instead of flying all the way to Massachusetts. Yeah. And I could see that even if, you know, you were weren't in another country, but in like rural America and there was a paucity of subspecialists in your area that... You know, I mean, we see this in Michigan, actually, not not too infrequently, where patients have to drive like three, four, five hours to get to Ann Arbor for a second opinion. So something like this could be really helpful for, you know, patients of all types everywhere. I agree. And then if you think about the way that telemedicine is practiced, one of the things that comes up first and foremost when people start thinking about it is the model of telemedicine care that's implemented. And there's basically four different options. First is synchronous care. And this is what people think of, I think, when they think of telemedicine. It's where the patient and the physician are on a video call or telephone call at the same time and they're talking real time. So synchronous care is pretty straightforward. Uh, I'm sure that everyone's had some exposure to this during the pandemic where they've hopped on a Zoom call or a Skype call with a patient, or at least they've thought about it. Asynchronous care is a different model itself. So it's where you get a testing result or you get an image and then that's sent to an ophthalmologist to review at a later time. You know, diabetic retinopathy screening is a perfect example of asynchronous telemedicine where the image is captured, the physician looks at it and makes a report that's sent back to the patient or to the primary care doctor. If you combine these things, it turns into something that I think is the future of telemedicine and ophthalmology is called hybrid telemedicine. And that's where the patient can capture all of their testing. They can get their visual field, their fundus photograph, their OCT. The physician will review it, but then afterwards, the physician will hop on a synchronous call with the patient and and have a conversation about the results, talk about the clinical diagnoses and their prognosis, and make a clinical treatment plan. So that's a combination of asynchronous and synchronous care. And then lastly, there's remote patient monitoring, where ideally, it's like a wearable situation. So patients that are wearing their iWatch or their Apple Watch, it can track your heart rate, and they have a tracker for AFib right? So it can ping your cardiologist if you have AFib. There aren't a lot of tools like that for ophthalmology, but there are a few and they're kind of cool. There's a IOP sensing contact lens that's been on the market for some patients. And the home eye care tonometer is one of these where you can have a patient capture their own clinical data, send it over to the, the doctor in real time every day. And then if anything's abnormal or strange, then the ophthalmologist can act on it. And there's also coming to the market in the future, at least it's in clinical trials, is something called 
it's a home-based OCT where the patient can just take a quick scan of their eyes every day. And using AI, it can automatically detect a new fluid in the retina. And if there is retina, it can ping their eye doctor to let them know so they can contact the patient. And that would save a lot of <laughs> visits in the retina clinic. Okay, so you've told us an outline of how you can do telemedicine and ophthalmology. Are there specific subspecialties within ophthalmology that you think are more amenable to tele than others? If you review the literature, the ones that took this up the fastest were the people that could use Zoom alone or use Skype alone to make diagnoses. Because that's basically all we had at the beginning of the pandemic, right? So oculoplastics is mainly external stuff, eyelid and orbital stuff. Pediatrics is basically eye movement issues and kind of eyelid conjunctivitis type stuff. Neuroophthalmology is also eye movement issues and just general um, neuro exam issues. So those specialties, oculoplastics, pediatrics, and neuroophthalmology were some of the most heavy utilizers of telemedicine at the beginning of the pandemic. If you combine the hybrid testing that we're talking about, then a patient could come in and get any litany of tests in an ophthalmology office. And that really opens the floodgates to specialties. In terms of the ones that are published on it, retina and glaucoma are some heavy hitters. If a patient comes in and gets a fundus photo in their OCT, then you can manage anything from AMD to uh, hydroxychloroquine toxicity to diabetic retinopathy or cystoid macular edema. For glaucoma, it's obvious that if a patient comes in and gets a visual field and their OCT RNFL, then you can manage any progression remotely and maybe even get a better sense of their compliance and their medication adherence in the home. You know, some of them are not quite as good. I'd say that uveitis is one of the laggards. It's really hard to check for cell and flare, and that's a pretty detailed, sensitive exam. Trauma is not very good, and not necessarily because you can't see it via telemedicine, but because it's probably going to need something done. And so I don't think telemedicine is really appropriate for a lot of trauma cases like an open globe. And then inherited retinal disease is a very... It's a very exam-heavy field, too, so it could be done via telemedicine, but no one's really published on that yet. Okay, so let's say we're sold. We want to try to start doing some telemedicine at our program. What are some of the minimal requirements that we and the patient need to make this possible? First and foremost, you just have to have a mechanism of talking to the patient. And so for telemedicine, what you really need is either a computer, a smartphone, or a tablet that has a webcam and a microphone and ability to connect to the internet. And that's also true for the patient, right? They need to have access to some kind of technology to connect to their physician. The physician, though, you're going to need access to the EHR in real time while you're talking to the patient so you can document and understand their clinical history, perhaps. And you're going to need a stable internet connection, and you're going to need to choose a telecommunication software that uh, can be used to communicate with the patient remotely. You mean things like Zoom and, and whatnot? Yep. So at my hospital, uh, we're kind of mandated to use either Zoom or Doximity. So Zoom, everyone, I think, is familiar with because of the pandemic, but Doximity, maybe not. So you've heard of Doximity in terms of its ability to be a social networking platform for physicians. But what you might not know is the app on your phone has capability to call patients via either phone or via video. And it's super convenient for a patient because you... uh All you have to do is type in the patient's phone number. It sends them a text. If they click on that text, then it brings up the video visit without them needing to download the app on their phone. Zoom can be clunky and difficult for patients to use. There's not a lot of good uh, literature comparing these things, but you know, some things are very easy for patients to use. Some are harder. You really, I think the goal is to find something that your patients have familiarity with 
and doesn't limit their ability to access care with. Uh, it might take some experimentation if you're not familiar with all of these platforms yourself, but just try them out. Some of the options other than Zoom and Doximity include Doxy.me. You can use FaceTime, you can use Skype, WhatsApp, WeChat, or really anything else out there. Do you have any tips on, you know, once you get onto the call with a patient, any, you know, tips for how to present yourself to the patient? Yeah, so let's say you're, you just hopped on the video call with a patient. What can you do to make sure that this is a good call and that things don't go awry? Well, there's a few basic tips that I think everyone should know, and it may seem obvious, but it's worth just mentioning. First of all, dress professionally, just like you would in the office. That may for you mean scrubs. That may mean shirt and tie, whatever it is that you would normally want to have the patient perceive. They need to be, you know, perceiving a professional physician on the other side. Sit up straight, look directly at the camera whenever possible. That's worth practicing because it's not obvious. Uh, it's not easy. It's hard to look at a camera. You want to look at the screen. You want to look at their face. But if you're looking at the camera, the patient will think that you're looking at them and they'll feel more connected to you. And position the microphone uh, for clear voice quality. Try to get it as close to you as possible and make sure it's nice and clear. Avoid distractions. It's easy in a virtual environment to let your phone go off, to have a significant other walk in the room, to have, I think everyone saw that YouTube video of the guy that was on the news and then his babies crawled into the background and his wife had to drag him out of the room. Like <laughs> distractions sometimes can happen no matter what, but like try to avoid those if you can. Appear engaged and empathetic. And so when you're, I'm sure every doctor on this podcast that's listening is a great doctor with great bedside manner, uh, but it's not obvious and it's not guaranteed that that's going to equate to good bedside manner in a virtual visit. And so it's worth practicing and being cognizant of the fact that you need to appear engaged, appear empathetic, appear, you know, in it with the patient, really uh, nurture that doctor-patient relationship. I would encourage you to talk very slowly because the patient may not have good webcam video quality. They may not have good Wi-Fi, so it may be a little choppy. So talk slowly and clearly and ask the patient to repeat the plan back to you so you can confirm that they understand what you're talking about. Do you have anything that you would suggest to patients before, and you know, this might be like a package that you give to the patient of things that they should do to prepare for their telemedicine visit? You know, there are ways to ensure that the patient is ready um, and best prepared for a telemedicine visit. At Mass Ioneer, we kind of provide them with instruction sheets to try to get them geared up for the visit itself. We talk to them about how to use the technology like Zoom or Doximity. We talk about having the computer in a good position to look at the eye, to have adequate lighting around. We encourage them to have a family member or a friend around to help them out if needed. And then to bring a flashlight, a pen and paper to write things down, and then something to cover their eye with so that you can check one eye at a time if necessary. We also encourage them to test their own vision at home if they can. There are some, uh, some ways of doing that I'll talk about later. But try to capture as much clinical information prior to the patient showing up on the video call as you can. All right? So vision is just one of those things. Uh, another thing you could try to do is create a patient survey that could be sent to a patient ahead of time so that you don't have to waste your video time talking about their past medical history, their past surgical history, what glaucoma medicines they're on. Instead, just send them a survey. Have them fill it out ahead of time and send it back to you. You've gotten all the the nitty-gritty out of the way, you've reviewed all the review systems, and then the patient can just get straight to what they're, they're there for, their chief complaint. And then sometimes they can capture photographs ahead of time and send those to you from their iPhone or their webcam as well. And lastly, of course, we talked about the hybrid telemedical visits where the patient's getting their testing ahead of time. It's really useful to have the patient go to the ophthalmologist's office ahead of time, capture those formal ophthalmic testing 
modalities, have that sent to you in time for you to review it well before you get on that call with that patient. So you're kind of already aware of what's going to happen when you talk to them. So hybrid telemedicine, I think, is the future of the way that ophthalmology should go with, with telemedicine. Let's say hypothetically the patient goes in to an ophthalmology office, gets their visual field, OCT, RNFL, and their pressure checked. Then they could go home. They don't have to wait around in the office for another 40 minutes for you to finish your patient care with the increased risk of contracting COVID in the waiting room. And then come into the office, wait for you to review the testing with them, talk about the diagnosis, and then go home. Right? That's a long, laborious process. Instead, you could set it up to be super efficient where at MassIneer what we're doing is we're opening Saturday morning clinics and evening clinics where a patient can come in there's no doctors around. There are only technicians that are doing imaging-only testing. So the patient will come in, let's hypothetically say, like a Saturday morning. They get their visual field and they go home. The physician can review that the next week and call the patient and do a virtual visit. The patient's wait time has been essentially zero. They come in for their scheduled visual field. Um, the physician is able to have a faster video call with them. They've already reviewed that visual field. And overall, it's a win-win. And because telemedicine is being re- reimbursed at parity, this is just like any other exam. And, you know, that even just sounds more like I'm just thinking if I were a patient, that just sounds more convenient to be able to come in like after work and in the evening, get your testing and then get the heck out as opposed to, you know, the cost of having to skip like half a day of work to come in and get all this testing and everything. So that, oh, yeah. that's uh, hopefully it's been a popular program, I hope, at MassSignier. Yeah, it's, it's definitely an interesting pilot and we plan on kind of expanding But I think that it's also interesting to think about it in terms of remote access uh, in the same way that we talked about kind of rural locations, because sure, uh, there may not be a lot of optometry and ophthalmology practices around, but if a patient can get their special test at an optometry practice, but then send it to the glaucoma specialist who is like hundreds of miles away in the middle of Wyoming or something, then yeah, you can get them the same level of subspecialty care without having to have that patient drive hundreds of miles for that same exact test that they would have otherwise gotten in person. So assuming that you haven't had a patient have this tested in a hybrid model, how are you having patients test their visual acuity when they're home? So for vision, it can be tricky. Uh, what we try to do is have the patient print off a visual acuity chart at home and hang that up on the wall. We tell them to walk a certain number of paces away and to check each eye individually and have that information ready to go. Not every patient has a printer in their home or the ability to do that. So we also give them an option of a litany of apps they can be used to check their vision, and some of them are a little bit better than others. But I know, Ben, that you actually have looked into this and published on this. Do you want to talk uh, a little bit more about it? You're the expert. Yeah, oh, geez. Well, um, this excellent med student I worked with, Ben Starin, shout out to him, did this project where he looked at the available mobile applications for visual acuity testing. You know, and there, there was a number of them, you know, over 30 for both iPhone and iPad. We looked at Apple because they have, you know, market dominance with smartphones. And there were basically two criteria that he looked at. One was, was utility in a telemedicine context. So what that means is if Grayson is my doctor and I'm looking at the app Am I looking at the same letters that Grayson would be looking at to verify that we're, you know, if I say, you know, you know, F- FHCBD, am I actually reading the right thing? Some apps don't have that synchronicity. So, you know, they, Grayson would have no way of verifying whether or not I'm reading the correct letters. The other thing, which I think was even more concerning, was we looked at the accuracy of the expected size of the letters 
at the appropriate reading distance. So you know you can easily calculate if you have an app that's testing twenty twenty a twenty twenty line, the letter should be you know x millimeters tall. So we just verified that these apps are doing it correctly, and to our shock and horror, the majority of apps do not accurately do that. You know, I don't want to call it any specific app. You can look at the paper if you want to see which apps don't do it well. But what we troublingly found was that no app was able to do both. Either one, show you the letters that the patient is seeing at the same time, and or two, show that uh, have an actually accurate optotype, uh, actually accurate size of the visual acuity letter. And some of them were just like very, very far off. You know, a 2020 line that will, will a line that the app would say is 2020 was actually more equivalent to like 2060, 2070. So you can get very, very. That's super concerning. You know, I think part of this goes to show that there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. And there's a lot of room for growth in telemedicine in our field. Um, people are trying, obviously. One of the ways people can't uh, try to overcome this visual acuity optotype size problem is uh, there was it, it, out of the University of Pittsburgh, um, they created a website called Farsight.care. And if you go to that website, it's a pretty simple website. It's got the Snell and Acuity chart on it, and it's got a red bar next to the Snell and Acuity chart. What that red bar is supposed to do is the the patient can increase or decrease the website size on their phone, their tablet, their laptop, their desktop, so that the red bar is the same size as the short end of a credit card. You know, I don't know how big that is, maybe four inches or something. And so if that red bar is the same size as the side of a credit card, then you know those letters are always going to be the same size no matter what device the patient's using. And if they're the appropriate distance away, then it should be the right optotype size. Now, I don't. I haven't tested it myself, and so it looks like uh, Ben, you've done a lot more of the um, we actually objective didn't measurements. Specific test either, but oh, I know, but yeah, I haven't either. But I assume it's reliable. Um, and they also have kind of red, a red circle for red desaturation testing and an Amstler grid too. Interestingly, you can have a patient check their peripheral vision of themselves. You can have the patient kind of close one eye, look straight ahead, and use their thumb of their arm to kind of sweep in from the periphery. And as soon as they start to see where their thumb is, they stop. And you're watching them do that, and you get a sense of where the patient's peripheral vision is starting and stopping. If it seems reasonable, you know, then hopefully it's good. Uh, if it's grossly deficit, um, then you'd probably pick up on something. But all these things are trying to get at the fact that we're such an exam-heavy field. We're, we're trying to find ways of getting around the exam components. So those are the subjective components of the exam. Vision, peripheral vision, color vision. Those things can all be tested for. But the objective components of the exam are, I'd say, just as critical. You know, we're so used to just seeing a patient in person, looking at the eyes, looking with our slit lamp, and looking at the back of the eye. Like, how do you replicate a lot of that stuff? Well, if you're not, some of that stuff is possible to do. Um, for the external exam, we talked about the fact that video webcams can pick up a lot of eyelid stuff. They can pick up a lot of the external pathology. Eye movements are the same. You can have the patient look in all directions and see if they're, you know, incominate. You can see if there's any deficits, if there's any lag or nystagmus. And video visits are decent for that, you know. And Boston Children's Hospital here in Boston, they have been doing this a lot for, for their kiddos post-operatively to check for eye alignment. And it's been, you know, pretty successful for them. For pupil testing, it's worth mentioning that it can be difficult, but 
it's possible. So if a patient has a flashlight with them or a cell phone that has the ability to have a bright light on it, then you can coach them through the exam of shining the light at their pupil, seeing if it's reactive, checking for an APD by doing the swinging light test. Those things are technically possible. And if they can't do it themselves, then maybe their family member who's with them can do it for them. So, so it is possible to gather that information remotely. The intraocular pressure is a difficult one to do uh, remotely. So at home, unless a patient has the home eye care tonometer, there's really no reliable way of checking that at home. But fortunately, we talked earlier about the hybrid testing visits. You know, if a patient comes in on a weekend or an evening for the testing visit, then the technician can check their pressure before they go home and you'd have that information for you when you see the patient. So you can overcome that with the hybrid testing environment. So the anterior segment is one of the most challenging aspects to replicate digitally. And let me explain why. So we're all familiar with the eye anatomy. We know that the the anterior chamber consists of things that are clear, like the cornea and the anterior um, chamber fluid, things that are opaque, like the sclera, the conjunctiva, the iris, things that are varying colors, uh, things that are kind of semi-clear, like the lens, and you're trying to check for cataracts, things that are very small, like cell and flare, things that are very large, like iris, potential lesions. And so trying to get a sense of all of those things simultaneously, as well as trying to get a sense of depth cues of what's happening in what location is incredibly difficult. People have tried videos and smartphones, and sometimes with smartphones, you can add a macro lens or attachments with little light sources. You can use DSLR cameras. Those are okay, right? They're not great, but the problem is they don't give you a sense of depth because most of them are 2D and they don't have a slit. There is the ability to attach cameras and light sources to slit lamps. So the slit lamp, while it might not be able to capture a stereo image all the time, it can still provide a sense of depth through depth cues of the slit. If the slit is angled at the right depth, you can tell if there's something in the anterior chamber or on the surface of the eye. With a 2D photo with an iPhone, it might not be obvious, and so that can be helpful. Other people have tried anterior segment OCT or UBM to try to give a better sense of anterior chamber anatomy. But overall, trying to replicate stereo with high fidelity is quite challenging. Posterior segment, we know that there's a lot of testing available in the ophthalmology office, but there's really not a lot of good solutions in the patient's home. Ben, you had mentioned (laughs) in passing that it's sometimes possible to capture the the fundus of animals like cats and dogs with your iPhone on accident if you take the, the photo in the right way. But for humans, that's really not possible just because of the anatomy. So for hybrid testing, it is, uh, it is possible. You can have the patient come in and get their fundus photo, their OCT, their B scan, whatever it is that they need, and they can go home and you can look at that later. Yeah, I was just, I was FaceTiming my cat. Well, I was FaceTiming my wife who has my cat. And uh, we had noted that the front-facing camera on an iPhone can, at the right angle, capture fundus details, actually with surprisingly high resolution. So I asked uh, Grayson, is this replicable for humans? Apparently it's not. So, Not that oh, I've uh, seen yet. Not yet. Maybe one day. Hyper-testing is the way. Yeah. yeah. Hyper-testing is the way for now. And uh, a few just logistical things I think that might be worth considering is that this is a clinical exam, just like any other, and you need to document your findings, and that's good for both internal communication to other doctors, but also communication back to the patient and to keep things in the medical record. And so do the documentation just like you would otherwise. Record the HPI, the exam findings. Even if the exam findings are limited, you should put down what you did see and what you can see. The only thing that changes is that you need to add a few special pieces to a note, like an attestation, if it's a virtual visit. 
the requirements change amongst insurers in different states. But if you follow these five principles, I think you hit most of them. And so just always remember to do these five things. Number one, document that you obtained patient consent to do a telemedicine visit. Number two, document the location of both yourself and the patient. Were you at home? Were you in the clinic? Was the patient at home? Were they at work? Just talk about where they were and also if they were in state or out of state compared to where you are. Document the time that you spent on the call with the patient. That's helpful for billing purposes. Document the use of either video or telephone. Uh, there are special codes that you can use like modifiers. If you're not, if you're a resident and you haven't done a lot of billing, then you don't worry about it, but there are ways to kind of flag that in your documentation. And then lastly, just put something in there about the fact that you were using this telemedicine visit during the COVID-19 pandemic. If you hit those five things, you've basically uh, done your due diligence to make sure that you're not going to hit any regulatory hurdles down the road. Just out of curiosity, is are you penalized at all if, if the physician is at home versus in the clinic or that? Because mm-hmm. we have to document it. Okay. Not um, nowadays. It used to be that for telemedicine, the physician had to be in the office, but, you know, it might not make sense, but the patient was supposed to be in an office setting too. <laughs> Okay. Even though it's okay. like it wasn't allowed to do Weird. telemedicine in the patient's home, which seems odd. But now after the pandemic, it's for the first time allowed to be done in the patient's home, which is kind of, you know, ideal. Gotcha. And do you know, is, is reimbursement any different if you do things by video or telephone? For now, they're not. So right now, sure. payment is the same if it's on video or telephone. There's a concern that in the very near future, telephone reimbursement is going to go away at parity. Um, and telephone reimbursement is going to fall a lot, but then the video is going to stay the same. And so a lot of institutions are trying to push their providers, their doctors to use video visits with their patients. The problem is that in ophthalmology, most of our patients are elderly and the patients have a hard time with video technology, right? And oh yeah, it's uh, so a lot of patients prefer telephone. And if that's the only thing that's available, you know, then do the right thing for the patient. Just do the, the telephone visit. But ideally we'd be paid at, at parity for that too. Okay, so that was a great review, Grayson, on kind of a, a quick course on what to think about when you're trying to start tele-ophthalmology. And we really appreciate you teaching this in a podcast format, but you know, this isn't, it doesn't seem like a trivial skill to transfer your in-office clinic clinical skills and examination to the tele-ophthalmology setting. Do you have any solutions to help people with that in the future, you know, if and when tele-ophthalmology takes off? You know, I think that we get really good training for in-person care with the residency training, obviously. And I think there's going to be a need for future curricula to train people in the same way for telemedicine to make sure that you're doing appropriate care for patients at the point of care. At Mass Ioneer, I've worked closely with the leadership, like our program director and otherwise, to institute a telemedicine curriculum at our institution for the residents. We have a few lectures that we've given throughout the course of the year talking about telemedicine and appropriate care. When residents rotate with me, they're kind of involved and integrated into the telemedicine visits that I'm conducting. And so they're getting real life example or experience with that and hands-on experience. And then we're doing pre and post testing to see kind of what we need to do to improve our curriculum and learning as we go. It's also worth mentioning that there is an inter-institutional curriculum being created amongst a lot of the bigger programs. I was fortunate enough to be invited along with Michael Boland, one of our IT gurus and other physicians at Mass Ioneer to put together part of this for Mass Ioneer's component. But a lot of institutions are coming together to create a massive curriculum for residents and trainees 
to train them in telemedicine. So in the future, I think we will get better training on how to do this. That's awesome. We very much look forward to seeing more of that. You know, I think that's kind of the physician side of what's new or different about integrating telemedicine into our daily practice. What about the patient side, though? Are there, are there things that we should consider when we try to upscale tele-ophthalmology? First and foremost, you shouldn't assume that this is going to improve access to care and reduce health disparities. In fact, it can make things worse for patients. The patient populations that already have a hard time accessing care are the poor, indigent, non-English speaking patient populations in remote rural settings. Those same people probably don't have access to reliable broadband and there's no guarantee that they have a smartphone or a laptop with a webcam and a microphone. So those same people might be left out even if you try to implement a telemedicine system. We have found some of that at Mass Eye and we're trying to actively overcome that by providing better care in underserved communities. The the other thing to remember is that the patients that we see, a lot of them are going to be hard of, hard of hearing because they're elderly, or they're going to be low vision just by the fact that they have ophthalmic conditions. And so a Zoom-based video call or a video call on FaceTime is not going to be appropriate for them. They won't be able to see you or their screen in enough detail to see what's, what you're talking about, or have, they may have trouble navigating a smartphone, right? It's not obvious that interpreter services are integrated into these virtual formats, and so you have to be mindful of that and actively create opportunities to bring interpreters in. And then, you know, patients are going to have the same problems with health literacy and distrust of the healthcare system as they did before, uh, and they may distrust it even more in a virtual format. They may just see it as like a doc in a box instead of seeing a, patient, a doctor in person. So you just have to be mindful of exacerbating healthcare disparities. The other thing to know is that you're seeing a patient in their natural environment for the very first time. Beforehand, they were on your turf, right? They came to your office. You saw them on your time. But now you're trying to go into their home and their workspace and their community and see them where they live. And so that can be a beneficial thing. You can get a sense of their social context, what they're living in, why they're having trouble with their glaucoma medications, why they're having trouble affording their medications. Um, it also is helpful because it saves them travel time cost savings otherwise, scheduling flexibility might be easier for them. to. I've had patients call me in the middle of work. They're still at work and they're able to have a quick video call with me so they don't have to take time off of work and lose money. But there are disadvantages too, right? So the patient will have a lack of control over their environment. I've had patients that live in multifamily homes and they don't have the ability to walk into a private room, close the door, and have a private visit to talk about their sensitive ophthalmic issue and have that privacy Again, they may have limited technology, and they're definitely not going to have that OCT in their home. So it's not the same as having them in person. Okay, so there's a number of limitations, whether it's with the exam or with patient-level disparities that could be exacerbated. What's coming down the pipeline to improve telemedicine with ophthalmology? There's a lot of cool technologies and a lot of cool innovative models of care that are being implemented. We already talked about the hybrid level care. That you know, the hybrid model of care wasn't obvious at first, but now that we've started to play around with it, I think it is starting to take off at least at our institution and a few others. So that's brand new and you're hearing it here maybe for the first time. Another cool thing is that, Ben, you talked about the visual acuity apps being pretty terrible. Mm -hmm. There's an interesting app that's being created at Stanford, the Stanford Acuity Test. And what it does is it uses an AI algorithm and the front-facing camera to detect automatically how far the person is from their phone and then change the optotype size accordingly, automatically, so that they don't have to, you know, hold the phone, you know, exactly 16 inches or whatever it is away from their face. 
it can do it for them. There are virtual reality machines that have instituted visual field testing and visual acuity testing, and those things might be you know, more accessible, more affordable. We talked about the home-based OCT that's being developed. They can use AI to automatically detect fluid in the retina, and that can live in the patient's home or in their community at a community health center, perhaps. You know, you may not have heard of it, but there is something, it's called the GS1 Gonioscope. And so this is a machine, and this, there's others similar to this. It's a digital gonio exam where it takes... What? Yeah. So no need to pull out that four mirror anymore. You can actually just take photos of it and document it. I, I threw it out when I started Retina Fellowship, but this is great. <laughs> uh, well, hopefully it's not sitting in some trash can somewhere. Um, but then there's also something called lens flare photometry. Lens flare photometry is a, a, a technique that quantifies the amount of flare in the anterior chamber. And it's highly correlated to the amount of inflammation and active uveitis in a patient's eye. So this is a, a quantitative metric that doesn't require you to use a slit lamp to look for cell and flare. So that's helpful. And then there are companies working on digitizing the slit lamp in a way that gives you either um, easier access to the images remotely or even providing stereo videos and images to review remotely, sometimes in real time, sometimes out of sync in an asynchronous format. But there's a lot of cool work going on to try to make all the, a- all the exam components accessible in a virtual format. The other cool thing that I want to mention that is a little bit tangential but definitely related is artificial intelligence. I won't belabor it too much, but everyone should be aware that ophthalmology is kind of the leader in many ways in the field of AI and medicine. We had the first machine, uh, first machine learning algorithm approved by the FDA to autonomously diagnose a condition, meaning that no physician needed to look at that image for them to get a diagnosis. And that was called IDXDR. A researcher called Michael Abramoff in Iowa created this amazing algorithm that can, they can look at a fundus photo and automatically detect not only if you have diabetic retinopathy, but if it's severe enough to refer to an ophthalmologist. And then there's a new one on the market that was recently FDA approved called iArt, as in, you know, art like something you hang on the wall. And what it does is it also autonomously detects uh, diabetic retinopathy, but it's different differentiating factors that can tell you if it's visually significant or like visually threatening diabetic retinopathy. So that's With just a fundus photo. With just a fundus photo. Wow. There are other, if you look through the literature, there are a ton of researchers doing really crazy stuff with AI. Um, there are companies that have shown that using a fundus photograph, um, you can automatically tell if someone has, uh, like, what their age is, uh, what their gender is, what their systolic blood pressure is, what their smoking status and a hemoglobin A1C is, just from a fundus photograph. Using OCTs, people have shown that you can check for Alzheimer's disease. You can check for autism spectrum disorder. Using Scheinfluke OCT images at the front of the eye, you can check for corneal ectasias. You can see if a patient's at risk for post-LASIK ectasia. Uh, Using confocal microscopy, you can tell what kind of organism is causing a keratitis. Like The the possibilities seem to be endless, and because we're such an imaging-heavy field, these images are very amenable to AI. And so the reason why this is applicable to telemedicine, and it may seem tangential at first, is that if you can, the first goal of telemedicine is decouple the in-person exam so that the patient can see the doctor from wherever they are, whenever they need to be seen. And that's supposed to increase access. But you're still limited by the human resource factor of needing a physician on the other side of that video call. And if you can automate a lot of that, 
and provide diagnostic level information without needing the human there. That's the expensive part. To, fa- to pay the physician, it's expensive and it's time limiting. And the physician only has so much time. They still have their own family and their kids. So it's not like they're going to be available 24-7. But if a machine can do it, then at least it can get the appropriate patients to care to be seen either via telemedicine or in person. It can provide better access, better care, lower cost, and hopefully, again, decrease health disparities. Yeah, I, you know, this is like my own personal comment to this. I know that, well, I feel like I've heard some physicians worried about AI because they think it's going to take away our jobs or make us obsolete. And maybe in some respects, it will be, I mean, certainly in some respects, it'll be far superior. I can't look at a fondus and guess someone's age or their A1C or anything like that. But, you know, I think, as you say, that this will one not only will at minimum improve patient care by helping to screen patients that that have problems. It also help the physician in not missing things that can be easily missed when you have, you know, 50 patients that day and you have two minutes to look at this fundus. You know, I've definitely had many near misses and I don't want to think about how many misses I've had in terms of finding subtle early signs of disease that could really help a patient's life. So I hope people listening to this aren't scared of artificial intelligence. I think It'll hopefully only make patient care and our own lives as physicians easier. The way I like to describe it is augmented intelligence in the sense that it's going to augment the physician's decision-making abilities. In some ways, you're used to this, right? Like if you get an EKG, then maybe we don't do that much in ophthalmology, but it kind of has an automated read at the top. And so you're kind of used to understanding that the computer can make some interpretation of data. And it's only getting more and more sophisticated. The last thing I would say about AI is that I can see it as a way of raising all boats in terms of knowledge and education, right? Everyone across the world is not getting the same level of education. Here in the United States, we're lucky to have an amazing organization called the ACGME to make sure that our residencies are really high quality. But if you are one of the only eye doctors in like sub-Saharan Africa in your country and you're trying to see all the patients, you may not be subspecialized. You may not have the same level of expertise as like a uveitis specialist would or a strabismus pediatric specialist or a neuro-ophthalmologist, but with AI, it can give you that same level diagnostic and clinical decision-making and get everybody, no matter their background, to the same level and really, again, improve patient care. The future is bright, I hope. I hope so, too. No pun intended. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Do you want to give any shout-outs? First of all, thanks for having me on, Ben. This has been a lot of fun. If people have questions, they can feel free to reach out to me. I'm a mass pioneer, and uh, it's pretty easy to find my contact information online. The other thing that I'd say is that I just wanted to give a huge thank you to my mentors at Mass Pioneer who are helping me with a lot of this work that we're doing. Um, David Friedman is a glaucoma specialist who's done a lot of international work and also telemedical work. And Alice Lorch is our program director and also one of my mentors for the year. There's a lot of smart people working on this stuff, and uh, we're really standing on the shoulders of giants who have come before us. But again, I do think the future is very bright and that telemedicine is going to have a really strong showing in the next couple of years. And we can't wait to see what you and others in this field will do to help push patient care and and help with equity and hopefully reducing disparities. Okay, if you liked what you heard, you can follow us on Twitter at eyes4ears, is number four, and you can follow Grayson at Grayson Wilkes on Twitter as well. Uh, If you liked this episode and you want to see more like it, then leaving a rating review on iTunes where we found our podcast is super helpful. Thank you again, Grayson, for being on and spending another lovely, the weather is getting much better. So this is even more of a donation of your valuable time on, on such a nice day. And we hope to have you on again in the future. Thank you for having me.